Yes, hello, Tyler S. O'Reilly here. Before we start, just wanted to remind everyone of Bazaar Plus, our membership program where you can get extra episodes every week. Just simply go to the link in the show notes. It's Sports Bazaar. I'm going to kick back and enjoy this. Some of these stories, you would say, that cannot be true. The hunt for the weirdest. It's a real rollercoaster ride, this one, isn't it? <laughs> it makes Game of Thrones look like a sitcom. <laughs> Strangers. Hang on. He's on another level. What are you doing? <laughs> a lot of our stories that start with someone <laughs> fleeing moneylenders. Most unbelievable. This is a car crash. <laughs> stories to ever occur. I'll stop this right now. <laughs> it's just carnage. That is the densest bit of mayhem. So many <laughs> subplots in this story. In the world of sport. I think we're learning that embarrassment is not something. Sports bizarre. A naked fan ran onto the field and slid into second base. <laughs> no, I don't drink water. I cannot stand drinking water. I am the president of everybody. I am the president of the whole FIFA. <laughs> Opened his mouth and a sparrow flew out. It's time for the leaders of the hunt. It's really simple. Get there early, get the good back. It's Titus <laughs> O'Reilly. And Mick Malloy. Welcome to the latest episode of Sports Bazaar with myself, Mick Malloy, and Titus O'Reilly. Breaking with tradition today, you've thrown the rule book out, and <laughs> this one is jumping the queue. This, this one, we moved this around, and it's modern. You have decided to go otopical <laughs> for once in your life and bumped it up the order. What are we talking about? Well, we're talking about the Live Golf. PGA Tour merger, which right. normally we do something from, you know, the 1901 or the 1890s. Or... special. <laughs> yeah. But this one I just saw and I thought everyone's hearing about Live Golf and the PGA Tour merger that just wow. got announced recently. And I thought a lot of people don't know the history and a lot of people would probably want just a quick primer in our style. Yeah. Which, you know. How we got to where we are How today. we got, yeah, how we got here. Because there's a bit of history and it is much like FIFA was this Machiavellian Game of Thrones yes. thing. This is right in that wheelhouse. Okay. So this has got everything in it. There's a lot to get through. Okay. And you know golf, so you you know, you know will have lots of opinions on this, which will be great. But basically the Live Golf and the PGA merger is two rival sporting leagues coming yeah. together yeah. and deciding that's better to merge. And we've seen this before for Americans listing the NFL and the American Football League merge back in the day, yeah. the NBA and the American Basketball Association merged. You've seen ones like the USFL that we just covered was an attempt to merge, <laughs> merge and that yeah. failed. Um, World Series cricket, if you're into cricket, you know Kerry Packer yeah. tried to take Split over it and then they came back together. Back together. Um, Super League in rugby was an attempt to either set up a different league or merge. So this happens again and again. This is about money. This is about pure naked. How can we get a piece of this? Who owns the game? And at worst, we get to force a merger and we get to be on the table. Now, the PGA Tour, this has happened time and time again in golf. Who owns it and who's making the money? It's a bit opaque. They say the PGA Tour is the hardest to get financial information out of yeah. of all the sports. Okay. And a sport known for, which we're not going to get into today, but for all its moral posturing, known for being the last to desegregate in America, the last yeah. to allow black golfers into the league. Yeah, sure. the allowed even, they're not speaking from the highest moral All, right. all the posturing that's or, going on here yeah. is a bit hard to swallow, <laughs> to be honest. It is. Like, there's a lot of people getting on a pedestal and being knocked off. Yeah, okay. So the PGA started... In 1916, there was the Professional Golfers Association of America, and it was basically people that ran 
golf shops. They gave golf lessons. The golf pros at your local club, right? Yes. So not professional golfers. There were no professional golfers. What era golfers. are we talking about? This is 1916. This is when it was formed. When the game was still run and owned really by the, the Royal Nation. Yeah, was it, it was. And in was America, they still the controlling interest? Yeah, in and point? in America it was sort of out of just the courses they had there, there just became this group in the, oh, that yes. was just there to represent the golf pros who worked in golf teaching lessons, things like that, right? Yes. There wasn't a professional tour. Yeah. But they would go and play amateur tours and all this sort of stuff. And that was true until about the 1950s when suddenly the money on offer was big enough that some players could go and compete in golf tournaments full time. Yeah. So they gave up teaching golf and working in the golf industry and actually whole job was making money. Yeah. Then the 60s came and the golf between those that were the PGA golf professionals who were touring and the local people who just ran the yeah. local teaching you a golf lesson. Amateurs. The amateurs. That split because Arnold Palmer comes along and he explodes in popularity. Yeah. TV money comes in. Yes. So suddenly you've got about 200 golfers that are the professionals that tour year-round making their money from that. And then you've got about 30,000 golf pros yeah. who just work at the local golf club. So they're but two the, separate but the tours groups. were separate, the amateurs and the professionals at one stage because they never used to play against, against each other. Each, well, they did it at first. This is where it led up to where they split. Okay. So what happens is in 1966, you've got these two groups, 30,000 roughly local golf pros yeah. who don't make any money from tournaments and then you've got the 200 best golfers in the world. Yeah. Frank Sinatra comes along, yes. <laughs> which is always a tangent okay. for us. What's going on here? He says, I will sponsor a new $200,000 tournament in Palm Springs in 1966. All the pros go, we want to participate in this. Yeah. But the PGA, their tournament bureau, they are like, well, we have to tick this off. And it's made up of four players and three PGA executives. And one of them's the PGA president, Max Elbin. They vote 4-3, yes to the Sinatra event being added to the schedule. Yeah. Now, Elbin, who's the president, he's not thrilled about this because he gets a phone call from Bob Hope. <laughs> he says, well, I've got a tournament that you've already okayed that is almost at the same time and is in Palm Springs. This is going to clash. Knock Sinatra's one on the head. This is incredible. <laughs> And let's not forget Bing Crosby, Pebble Beach, the invitation. Exactly. So, so they're all involved. They're all involved, right? So all the celebrities are standing there see this is a great way to put their name into a sport and they love golf. Can I give you a little sidebar here? Yeah. Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis invented, the, you know, the drinks cart? Yeah. So the drinks cart that comes around during the game because they were doing a season in Vegas yeah. and they were playing golf and they decided they wanted martinis. They wanted martinis <laughs> and cocktails, so they designed a truck that would come round and deliver <laughs> drinks to them while they were on the golf course. This is true. And thus invented what today is when you're out in the golf course, the drinks, the drinks car comes car. out and you can get a beer or a cigar or whatever. You owe it to those boys who were pioneers <laughs> <laughs> to me, that's like moon landing stuff. They oh, were the yeah. first. Better. Because <laughs> the moon landing isn't really, you don't get a free drink out of it. What they did for everyone who came Every after golfer. them, they should be applauded. We should have a drink for them. So it shows you a bit about golf and what it yeah. was that these loose playboy types with a bit of spare time in their hands. They're all in the golf. Over, in, over golf. Yeah. 
this becomes a huge thing because the players have basically outvoted the execs to say we're doing the Sinatra Bob Hope yeah. says kill this Sinatra one. Oh, he, Bob Hope does. Yeah. So Elbin, who's the head of the what? PGA, he calls a higher-up committee to veto what the players have voted for, which is to do the Sinatra one. He organises a quick committee to say cancel the Sinatra one and he vetoes the Sinatra one. So effectively. At, at the behest of Bob Hope. Bob Hope. So effectively, Sinatra's created this thing that's caused this tension. Bob Hope's come in and told the head of the BGA, get rid of Sinatra's, and he overrules the players and uses a veto, which has never been used before. Oh, wow. Normally if the players vote to play in a tournament, the tournament gets done. This is the first time ever. And this is seen to the players, the professional players, as an act of war. Oh, yeah. So they get together and mainly it's Palmer and Jack Nicholas, sure. the two biggest golfers. They engineer a split. In 969, they split and they create something called the Tournament Players Division. And it is separate to the PGA of America, okay. right? In 1974, they then get a new executive director and he decides that they are going to now be called the PGA Tour. So you end up with two bodies, the PGA Tour and the PGA of America. The PGA of America represents local golf pros, not professional right. golfers. We can forget them. They're the old ones. So they're gone. They still exist, but they don't have anything in the live thing. The PGA Tour is what is left, and it's the tour of the top gotcha. golfers of all time. Tiger Woods played in it, Jack Nicholas, sure. anyone you can think of. Yeah. That basically ends it. At that point, you've got the what we know today. What we know today. The PGA Tour, and it only represents and only cares about professional golfers at the top level. It doesn't care about the local golfers playing and things like that. Okay. But it's already split once. So it goes along after 1969 quite happily, no challenges, until a guy called Greg Norman appears on the scene. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Greg Norman, Australian golfer, the great white shark he's known as, one of the greatest golfers of all time, people would say. A businessman. A, a businessman. Golf designer. Yeah, everywhere. Made a lot of money. Private plane. Didn't, Everything. Didn't Bill Clinton broke his legs sneaking down the back stairs at Greg Norman's? Again, fact-checked everything we say, <laughs> but I would put it to you. He's also incredibly good friends with Donald Trump, huge supporter of Donald Trump. Sure. But in the 80s, he's huge. He wins all the time. He's number one for 331 weeks in a row. He wins 90-odd victories on the PGA Tour. And Not many majors. One though. problem is he doesn't win the majors. Yeah. There's the Masters Tournament of Augusta, the PGA Championship, the US Open and the British Open. Yeah. Jack Nicholas won 18 of these. Yeah. Tiger Woods won 15. Norman, they think he should have won up to eight or ten yeah. if he'd fulfilled, but he only won two, but he was runner-up in eight. Runner-up in eight, and there's a choke is a word that's bandied around and it's very unpleasant in sport. Yeah. But there's a couple of occasions, I think, with Nick Faldo. Another occasion, I think he was beaten in a playoff yep. when the ball was put in from off the green, so probably unlucky. Yes. But, yes, his return in majors is not what it should not be. Not what it should, but still a great Player, but not absolutely be- not beloved by the other players. Seen as very egotistical. So, for instance, U.S. golfer Fred Couples, who'd been number one in the past, said not that long ago that no one had liked Greg Norman for twenty-five years, and that's not being mean. That's just the truth. Yeah, he said. Roger Javis, who was a player and is was the chairman of the Professional Golfers Association of Australia, once said, "Greg has always been turned on by money." So there's this view that, that Greg is. Yeah. 
a bit shallow and self-centered and money hungry. Yeah. Now in 1994, and this is interesting for what we're where we're at now. What a lot of people don't know about this Live Golf Tour and PJ merger and what's happened is this has happened before. Groundhog Day has happened before. Okay. In 1994, the PGA Tour was vulnerable. It's completely focused on the United States, the PGA Tour. So think of it like Major League Baseball. It might have international players playing in it, but it's really just focused on the American League. It's not worried about what's happening in other Correct. And that's always been a criticism of the PGA and why some people felt more supportive of Live. The PGA don't put any events in Australia. Where they we don't live, care. They just don't care. Live bought out of golfers. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? So So this is not new because at the time back in the nineteen ninety four, the best players on the tour were not American. Yeah. So at the time the top five players in the world, which was Nick Price, Greg Norman, Nick Faldo, Bernard Langer, and Jose Maria Olzabal, they were all born outside the States. So they were all international players. Only two Americans were in the top ten at yes. the time. Greg Norman, who's number two at the time and had been number one for a long time, he was really annoyed that to keep his PGA Tour card, his privileges to play on the tour, he had to play 15 PGA Tour events every year. And he wanted to play fewer events in the US and more in other parts of the world because he got bigger fees to go play other places. So he decides, this is ridiculous, the PGA Tour is too focused on America, we should have a world tour. So he starts putting together this sort of plan for a world tour of golf. This, this is, is in 1994. 94. Meanwhile, the PGA is under real trouble because the F Federal Trade Commission is starting to look into it and say, you are using monopoly power and you are stopping golfers being able to play in other tournaments. Right. Much like they stopped the Sinatra one a long time ago, they're stopping if anyone else tries to set up other ones, they Bang. say if you go and play in that other tournament, you're off the PGA Tour. And this is seen as a restraint of trade in America. Sure. And so they suddenly learn that the FTC lawyers are investigating them and they may be in big trouble. So this is all confronting the PGA Tour Commissioner, Tim Fincham. And so as he's battling the Federal Trade Commission, he also is hearing that Greg Norman is about to make this pitch for a world tour. The two going well isn't good because if he says he can't play in the world tour, that almost proves to the Federal Trade Commission that they're restraining yeah. trade, right? Gotcha. So on November 15, 1904, he decides anyway to send a memo to the PJ Tour players, if any of you go to this world tour, you won't pay playing on the PGA Tour. Yeah. So he just plays hardball. Yeah, Greg Norman announces that he is planning to start an eight-event world golf tour for 995 and he's got Fox Sports behind him. Rupert Murdoch has come on board and said, we'll fund it. They're going to give $3 million purses for 40-player fields, so just 40 players. Yeah. That's a huge amount of money. It means everyone's guaranteed some money who plays. The winner's share is going to be up to $600,000 and there's a million-dollar purse at the end of the year and all travel allowances will be paid for. They don't sound like very much these days, but at no. the time, tour events usually paid about two hundred thousand yeah. dollars. So this was a big step it's up. Like the live model. It's the live model, exactly right. So then he calls a players' meeting. It's November 17, ninety four. The memo's just gone out saying if you leave, you'll be out. Yeah. And it's the shark shootout at Sherwood, which is at Norman runs this, and it's a bit of an end of season, bit of fun for all the professional golfers. He calls everyone in to a meeting and he thinks he's got most of the top players all agreed to come with him yeah. to this World Golf Championship. And in the meeting, he's got people from 
Rupert's organization. Yeah. They got the money. It's going to be on Fox Sports. More money than you ever get. Why yeah. wouldn't you join? What's not to like? So Norman gets up and speaks, makes the pitch. Yeah. Everyone's yelling and talking and carrying sure. on and, and discussing. And then suddenly Arnold Palmer says, I'd like to speak. And he's 65 at this point, but he was still the big presence. Yeah. And he gets up and he says to Greg Norman, do you know what the big three are? And Norman says, yes. And Palmer says, do you think the big three, which is him, Nicholas and Gary Player, the yeah. three biggest players yeah. of the, do you think we've been presented with opportunities to leave the PGA Tour and strike out on our own and make our own money? And Norman says, well, you probably have been. And Palmer says, well, we never did so because even though we could have made personally a lot of money, we thought it was bad for golf and bad for the PGA Tour, which they had set up back in 1969. Yes. This is just making money for yourself and damaging golf as a whole. And even though I'm about to don't have long on the tour left, I'm not going to support it. And he got up and walked out. Oh, that's a game changer. And then Lanny Watkins, another golfer, spoke up and said, if it's not good enough for Arnie, it's not good enough for me. And he gets up and walks out. And then everyone gets up and leaves. And Norman's left there okay. crestfallen because he thinks half of these people in the room were behind him. Yeah. Nick Faldo says, if Greg had got the support of the leading players before making an announcement, it would have had a bigger impact, but he never spoke to anybody. The first approach I'd had was something was shoved under my door that week saying, come to the meeting. Yeah, okay. Norman said, I know there was a lot of pressure put on players behind the scenes. There was a couple of my really good friends, I thought at the time, which goes to show you obviously they were not, who didn't stand up for it. So it's dead in the water. Norman believes that IMG, which is a management company, yes. the biggest in sport pretty much, Palmer Works is part of them. He thinks they and the PGA got to Palmer to say, kill this deal dead. Norman had recently left IMG. So there's all yeah, these politics right. in the background. As always. So this is what happens. Fincham now realises, I think we've killed off Greg Norman's idea and Greg is incredibly bitter. He then goes and meets with the Congress and basically gets them to squash the Federal Trade Commission push. He says, okay. kill it off. They announce they're no longer looking into the PGA. So the PGA is safe from that. There's probably a few senators who want to become members at Augusta, I imagine. And you know exactly. Told, yeah, they're told. It. It and he also said, look at our tours come to your local golf club and inject all this money. Yes. And we donate. To, it's The PGA Tour is set up as a charity. It doesn't act really as a charity. It puts some money in a charity and then it gets tax exempt because it gives money to charity, but then it puts a lot of money into its own execs and players and everything too okay. as running costs. All right, here we go. And that comes yeah. up as an issue <laughs> down the track. So that means suddenly in 996 at the President's Cup, Fincham then says, I've joined with the European, Australasian, Japanese and South African circus to form a new International Federation of PGA Tours he just rips off Greg Norman's idea, right. yep. announces it. Greg is furious. He hunts down Fincham in the lobby of a hotel and says, I'm so annoyed with you. You told me you'd keep me in the loop about this. It was my idea. Yeah. And Fincham, he said, you told me you'd keep me in the loop. And he said, how long have you known about this? And Fincham said, about a month. And Norman tells him, F off. And Fincham had just won. He said, hopefully Greg and I can work through this. But he's just <laughs> screwed over Greg. He's taken his wow. ideas and the PGA owns it. Tiger Woods then arrives. Yes. Golf blows up sure and suddenly does. it's $25 million purses and all this and any threat of a rival league is dead. Greg Norman has lost. He's bitter about it. He's gone. The World Golf Championships that had been announced by the PGA, 
They start off okay, but they just slowly die. The, the PGA edge. is once again not – once Greg Norman's threat's gone, yeah, they don't care. What's their attitude towards Greg Norman? Are they happy for him to play on the PGA? Yeah, he's still, he's still thinking about that. A he's big not, name, a big – But big. the scar tissue is deep. Okay, yeah. So Greg is furious yeah. and he's coming towards the end of his career anyway, which brings us up pretty much to the modern day. So it's yeah. then quiet. Tiger Woods dominates. Golf is going very yes. well. The current golf commissioner is a guy called Jay Monaghan who's going to become big in this story and he's been there since 2017. So he's going along and he's on about $14 million a year. Okay. And he has no real problems when he starts but there had been in the background in 2014 a proposal gets put up for something that's similar to Greg Norman's idea by a guy called Andy Gardner of a group called the World Golf Group and he's starting to pull together a bit of a proposal of an alternate version of golf that's more internationally focused, yes. shorter playing days, very similar to Greg's idea. Right. All gets distributed this memo he writes and Rory McIlroy, he ends up, who's the world number one, he sees it, it's all happening, but it's in the background, no one takes it seriously. Right. In 2018, the word that this is the World Golf Series is becomes known and the proposal is going to be 15 to 20 annual events around the world with $20 million purses at every event. And people start to say, is this happening again? Are we going to have this happen? Here we go. Then finally, in early 2020, so this is January 2020, just before the pandemic comes along, no one knows it's really coming, it begins to be announced that this new project that's been floating in the ether suddenly is true and it's going to be called the Premier Golf League. It's going to have 48 players in every tournament. Um, It's going to be set up in teams of four, 54 holes instead of 72, shotgun start, which means instead of everyone... runs out there on the same... They all tee off on different holes at the same time. And it's revealed that there's money behind it is coming from Saudi Arabia and from Rain Capital in the United States and that they would co-fund it and there's going to be a huge amount of money. Phil Mickelson comes out in favour of it. Greg Norman comes out in favour of it, saying, well, this is interesting. It's still pretty loose, but they're all saying, oh, this could be interesting. Tiger Woods confirms he's been approached and says his team's looking at it but doesn't know much about it. Jay Monaghan, the head of the PGA, informs tour pros that if they play on this PGL tournament, they'll be banned from the PGA. So we're back where we started. Rory McIlroy, he comes out and says, I'm not interested in this concept. He was strident. He was absolutely. He says, the more I've thought about it, the more I don't like it. He said, I was aware of this idea all the way back in 2014. I read a thing that said, if you take the money, they can tell you what to do. So if you don't take the money, they can't tell you what to do. He hears that the Saudi Arabian public investment fund is behind it, which we'll get to in a bit. He says, I don't like where the money was coming from and I want to be the first one to speak out against it and I'm glad I had. He said, I would like to be on the right side of history with this one, just sort of as Arnold Palmer was with the whole Greg Norman thing in the 90s. So he brings up the earlier one. Greg Norman is furious. He says, (laughs) I like Rory, no question, but I think that what he has said probably comes less from him than is coming from the people around him. This one cuts a deep, Norman says. It's a subject that has left a lot of scar tissue for me. He said that he's been contacted by the Rain Group, which is Rain Capital, which is raising money for PGL. Yeah. He said, they've asked me questions. What are the potential hurdles? They've said, you know, 
you did this in the 90s and it almost got up. What, do we, need to what know? do we need to know? So Greg's in it up to his ears in talking to them and, and he wants in, it in to an get official up. capacity? Not at this, no. 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 Norman comes out and says, McElroy's only against this because NBC Sports and the Golf Channel, they have a deal with a thing called Golf Pass, which is a digital subscription service. And that has a contract with the PJ Tour. McElroy is involved in that money-wise with all those things. Yes. And so he sees this as much like IMG and Arnold Palmer killed the earlier one. Yeah. This is their vested interests. Right. He says, when I first wanted to do the World Tour, Rory was probably about eight years old. He was actually about five. So either Rory watched what I was doing and has a hell of a memory or someone coached him to say all this. <laughs> this leads to them not being that good of friends. Okay. This will blow up later. At the same time as all this is happening, this is the pandemic, people are realizing it might be a real thing. Yeah. February 2020 sort of thing. The European PGA, they suddenly realize that they're in a bit of trouble because this first several months into COVID is starting to hurt them. And they were also under enormous challenge from the PGA Tour itself in America because they're separate and they've really got cash problems. And so the Premier Golfing League comes to them and says, well, we've got Saudi money. We've got American money through the rain group. Yeah. Why would you not want to maybe do a deal with us, yeah. we'll come fund you and basically they want to say, we'll take over all your commercial operations. You run the tournament but we'll own the TV rights, we'll sell the okay. ads, we'll do all of that. It's a huge deal, sure. right? They say we're going to put in $500 million over 10 years for you to have all this stuff. Yeah. European Tour comes back and says, we don't really want to do that but We'll let the Saudis, if they want, become a, the major sponsor. The Saudis say, we don't really want to do that, but, you know, what if we take an ownership stake, basically, we own your broadcast rights and everything. The Re- European Tour thinks about it and then never responds because what happens is the PJ Tour gets wind of this and they realise they better do something. So within 72 hours, the PGA draw up a counter offer to form a strategic alliance between the European Tour and the PGA Tour. <laughs> And they say, we'll buy a $90 million minority stake in your productions, your media company, and Monaghan, the head of the PGA Tour, will join the European Tour's executive board. So suddenly they're sort of forming ranks against it. The PGA Tour also sets up a $40 million per year player impact program, which is basically we'll just give the big stars more money money. out of this fund to fight off the Premier Golfing League. So they give the most money to Mickelson, even though he hasn't won for ages because yes. he's a big star. They say, yeah. and I think they give him $8 million in one year just to keep him on out of yeah. this. So it suddenly seems that the pandemic in full swing, the PGA Tour and the European Tour forming up and this extra money for the PGA players, the stars, PGL, the Premier Golf League, is dead in the water and it is. It's dead. Right. It's done. And this is where people get, it's dead, it's over, they've won. And so suddenly all this talk goes to the background, it's all finished. Interesting though, and this is where people get mixed up between these two, Saudi Arabia go, well, this has fallen over and it's not great. Mm. Everyone's focused on the pandemic. Why don't we do this without the American rain group and without the Premier Golfing League guys? Why don't we just buy into golf ourselves? Create our own league. Create our own league. Jeez. So they start looking into this. <laughs> so while this is interesting is Saudi Arabia is going through this enormous change. So King Abdullah passed away from pneumonia in 2015. 
he's succeeded by King Salman, who takes the throne, but he's in his 80s, still alive, yeah. 87 now. Yeah. So power actually consolidates, even though he's not officially the king, around his son. It's his seventh son, I think, from his third marriage. Right. Muhammad bin Salman, who many people might have heard of. MBS he's often referred to. <laughs> he's, he's a character. He's a character. He is eventually named the Crown Prince and the Minister of Defence. Yes. Last year he became the Prime Minister. But whatever title you want to give him, he runs the kingdom. He is it. King Salman is 87 and has no real... Is, Takes a hard line with journalists. Takes a very... fair comment? We're, we're going to get into this. So... In 2016, he launches, this is Mohammed bin Salman, he launches his Vision 2030, which is this plan. And this is the thing with him. His human rights record is appalling, and we'll get into a bit of yeah. that. But whatever you say about him, he's a dynamic ruler. Yeah. So he has this vision that the Saudi economy needs to diversify. It's called Vision 2030. And it's about getting the reliance of all, getting out of that and starting to transform the nation into a truly global business. So this is getting into entertainment, it's getting into buying into other companies, all sorts of things. He realizes they have to diversify. November 2017, 400 members of the Saudi elite are called to the Ritz-Carlton Hotel and told they're meeting with Bin Salman. Yes. Nervous uh, invitation. Upon their arrival, they're met by, there's 400 of them yes. and they're the elite. They're oh, met yeah. by the state security guards and taken to different rooms in the yeah. hotel and reportedly... They are either beaten, others are told all their assets are being taken off them yep. and they no longer have positions of power. Like this is generals in the army, yep. all sorts of things. The New York Times, Washington Post, they've all reported on this. Sure. Some of them like don't make it out. Yep. The Saudis say the report of beatings is completely untrue. This didn't happen. But everyone of any credibility says this was a big purge. Yep. Uh, Bin Salman has basically got rid of the old guard. Yep. And brought in the new, and he is now the undisputed ruler. Well played. <laughs> <laughs> they call it an anti-corruption drive. What <laughs> tell you? Well, this is what the call Chinese the did too. They call everyone in, say, you've been found guilty of corruption. Give us all the, your wealth and see you later. And so he Thank does you. that. Come again. The crackdown continues on anyone that is a dissident, which brings us in 2018 um, to Jamal uh, Khashoggi, who's a journalist for the Washington Post, and he speaks out against it. He's lured to a Saudi consulate in Istanbul, basically to do some paperwork, and he's drugged and cut into pieces. Well, he's never seen leaving, is he? Never he's, seen leaving. Uh, there's a couple of suspicious bags that depart the embassy. Yep. The CIA leaks its conclusion that the Crown Prince Bin Salman has ordered this assassination. The Turkish find that he was dismembered. Yep. So every credible report is Bin Salman ordered this assassination. Who'd been anti-government. Been anti his new regime and yeah, approach. Yeah. Of course, the Saudis deny this, but anyone with any credibility says this happened. They did eventually offer someone up, I believe. They've they? offered up some of the thugs and claimed that he did, but, but the US... unilaterally. The US government say, we know he directly ordered this. Yeah. At the time, though, Trump was very close to Saudi Arabia and was president. And he disagrees with the U.S. intelligence community's findings and says, oh, it's not. He's a good guy. He's a good guy. I don't know what you is. And Trump says, we may never know all the facts surrounding this murder. <laughs> so the Biden administration finally come in and they are pressured and eventually release 
the US intelligence report that finds that he was almost certainly responsible for ordering this murder. This is a huge problem for him. He has been going along fine. People don't care if you're getting rid of your own people. Yeah. But a journalist in another country, in another country, a Washington Post journalist, all this is overreach. Senator Lindsey Graham, who's a Republican of South Carolina, quite right wing and a huge Trump sure. fan, he comes out and calls Prince Mohammed toxic and a wrecking ball, and he vows that he would never visit Saudi Arabia as long as that guy is in charge. Mm-hmm. In April 2023, this year, Mr. Graham travelled to the Saudi capital and was photographed grinning with Prince Mohammed, and he says. Things in Saudi Arabia are changing very quickly for the better. His vision for the country is economically is transformative. Biden at the same time also visits Saudi Arabia to try and fix relationships and he's criticised for fist bumping the crown prince. So the question is how do they go from yeah, pariahs when this journalist is killed this is a- to Biden fist bumping and even the Republicans all they're queuing up. They're all queuing up. What's changed? What's changed? Money. The Saudis are investing in everything. They have a thing called the Public Investment Fund, the PIF. It's a secret of vast, wealthy investment company, which is basically them spending their petrochemical dollars. Big pot of cash. Big pot of cash to put in whatever they think. 60% of it goes to internal projects. Yep. The other 40 goes to buying things overseas. It's chaired by Mohammed bin Salman. It's made investments, and this is how they've got back in everyone's good books. It's put money and bought huge amounts of money and shares in US companies including Boeing, Uber, Live Nation, which runs all concerts, Sure, Capcom, the computer game company, Disney, Facebook, Citigroup, BP, Electronic Arts, Take-Two Interactive, Activision Blizzard and the Bank of America. Good Lord. They own all things in that. In 2021, the PIF invested $2 billion into a private equity firm that had just been set up by Jared Kushner Donald Trump's son-in-law. He has $2.5 billion under management, so $2 billion of his $2.5 billion came from the Saudis. Yeah. The Public Investment Fund has $620 billion in assets under management. Yeah. The other bit they've been doing to improve their appeal overseas is to take over sport, which brings us to where we're going. Sports washing is the phrase. Sport is washing that? is the phrase, which goes back to Hitler running the Olympics, yeah. the Qatarians running the World Cup, which is, and the Chinese with the Beijing Olympics, yes. by running these big things, you make your country look better. Palatable. And, you, and you're palatable. We're, we're doing business with them. We're seen to be interacting with them. I yeah. don't think it's actually their plan at all. I think this is a mistake people make because it, if anything, Live Golf and all these various things have drawn more attention to the Saudis' record and how bad it is. Okay. I think what it's really about is not trying to make the Saudis look better, but making sure that they own so many things that you can't criticise them because you're conflicted. As we now see with Biden. With a- Biden. And Senator Graham. Yeah. So everyone. it's Always. about buying power. When you not, change your tune on something. It's about them not being able to do anything. They don't care if people in other countries think they're an oppressive regime. They care about whether anyone can do anything about it. And if you own <laughs> all these things, no one's going to in Congress going to pass a law against you or... Make you same thing with Russia. There's a bit of that going on with China and America too. too. They, they put so much money into universities and so much money into these establishments that you're so intertwined, you can't, you can't pull you out can't, from them. You, yeah. And so that's what I think they're more doing. I don't think it is a PR exercise, I think it's a power exercise. Okay. So, to give you an idea, they've realized sport's a huge thing. In December 2019, this is all the PIF, the investment fund. They built a brand new 15,000 capacity arena 
just to host a boxing match between Anthony Joshua and Andy Ruiz Jr. So they yes. just build a whole thing. This yeah. is the money they've got. In 2021, they hosted the inaugural Saudi Arabian Formula One Grand Prix. That's costing them $700 million in hosting feeds over 10 years. Yes. On the 7th of October, they purchased Newcastle United yes. in the Premier League. It's now the richest one. In May this year, they bought the top four teams within their own Saudi soccer league to try and bump it up and they straight away signed <laughs> Cristiano Ronaldo for $213 million a year to play. And they tried bit, to buy Messi. They tried to buy Messi, just missed out on Messi. Um, and they've bought a bunch of others are coming over. They're bidding for the soccer's 2030 World Cup. How do you think that'll go? I think they've got a chance. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hey, surely anything the FIFA, FIFA with... ethics committee <laughs> will step in and go, no. What have exactly. we learned? Yeah. You reckon they're in with a chance? No, yeah. Oh, well, you think of the money, right? Saudi Arabia spent, up until 2021, they'd spent $1.5 billion on sports. They announced in 2022 that they have committed $2.3 billion to soccer sponsorships in the first eight months of 2022. In eight months, they spent $2.3 billion on sponsoring soccer teams. And do you think FIFA might not be a bit, you know? Which brings us to golf. That's where they start to think, well, maybe we drop the go Premier League way. golf and we go our own way. At the heart of this deal is the PIF governor, Yasir al Ramian. And he's Mohammed bin Salman's right-hand man. Yes. He was the big beneficiary after the purge because he wasn't part of the elite. He's a young guy with a capital background. He'd gone to university in Saudi Arabia, yep. not overseas. So Mohammed bin Salman thinks, this guy is all just to me. And he likes him so much that he buys him a house worth $60 million near the presidential palace. Fantastic. And they hang out all the time. He gets appointed the head of the PIF. He's also the chairman of Newcastle United when they buy them. Yeah. He's the chairman of the state oil institution, uh, Armaco, which is the globe's most valuable company and it generates 42% of the Saudi GDP. Yeah. He's also the chair of Madam, which is Saudi Arabia's largest mining firm. He's on, Reliance, busy, this bloke. he's on Reliance Industries, which is the largest conglomerate in India, and he's on the board of Uber as well. Oh, so gosh. he's got a bit on, yeah. right? <laughs> Not lying around in that $60 million mansion no. a lot, is he? He's, he's also overseen the development of Neom, which is a $40 billion super city being built near the Egyptian border. Is that happening? Yeah, apparently. I keep seeing pictures of that. And, uh, that's the, it's $40 billion. That. That's Bin Salman's own personal thing. Now, his thing is he has to get these things done, Bin Salman. And now if he fails, he's it's in It's a double-edged sword being yeah. Bin Salman's mate. So he is a golf fanatic as well. So with the Premier Golf League falling over with the European PGA, and the pandemic distracting everyone, he tells his guys in the PIF, we've got the money, come up with the plan. So what emerges is Project Wedge. It's a plan to launch a new entity called the Super League Golf. And its idea is it would go to the PGA Tour and the European Tour and all this and the owners of the four majors, which are run separately, and say, why don't you just let us in and join us and we'll do this all together. We'll create a world tour, but that we'll fund you too. There's heaps of money. We've got sure. billions of dollars to pour into this. Yeah. They send a letter to Jay Monahan, the commissioner of the PGA Tour, and it says, we want to invest several billion dollars into this through our Super Golf League and we want to chat with you about it and we want to work with you. Yeah. Moynihan never replies. 
Had he done so, he would have learned that they were being offered the opportunity to be the operating partner of the Super League Golf. They would be able to work within them to do all the things they want to do. They would become a dual commissioner role for Moynihan, so he'd become one of the key people. Yep. And the tour would get a stake in all of this, and so they would get billions of dollars if they decided to join with them. This is where we've pretty much ended up today. Today. But the PGA don't even respond. They don't yeah. even hear them out. So they say, well, screw you, we're going to go a different way. So they decide we'll just approach all the top golfers and buy them now because you will not we're going rogue. To us. We're going rogue. We're going to compete against you. Also, the controversy of the European Super League, which is the football attempt to top, remember they were trying to poach the top teams? That's right. Yes. This is happening at this time and it falls over. So they decide let's not call ourselves the Super Golf League. They change their name to Live Golf. What does that mean? Live Golf stands for the Roman numerals 54. Mm. So while people read it as live, L-I-V, it's actually the Roman numerals, 54 holes holes for every tournament. So that's where Live Golf comes from. So they start to put together the plans for this. 48 player fields, no cuts that you have in normal ones, huge amounts of money, everyone getting paid, and they start to target the top players. They also start to think, how do we get this up? Mm. We need someone to front this. Who's got experience? Who could be the figurehead? We need someone who's... Who's still shitty with the PGA. Who hates the PGA, is a good media person, uh, is a former golf legend. Got a history of disrupting. Loves money. Not going to ask where the money's coming from. Yeah. Who could we pick? There's one person apparently on their list, and that's Greg Norman. They approach Greg Norman and say, will you be the head of Live Golf? And Greg Norman says yes. So we might stop there because Greg right. Norman is now the head of Live Golf and he's going to be wow. <laughs> leading us up to some, some hijinks. Go. All right, let the games continue when we return. If you'd like more Sports Bazaar, things get even bizarre. join our membership program, Bazaar Plus. Very easy to do. Uh, just follow the link in the show notes for this podcast or go to bazaarplus.com to join Bazaar Plus, our membership program.